0: If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. I've told you a number of times that there are only two kinds of religion in the world. There is a religion of works and of grace. All world religions, except for one, is a religion of works. Only Christianity is a religion of grace. It is unique. It is unlike any other. It is also unique in the sense that it is uniquely linked to Jesus Christ in such a way that you cannot have Christianity without Jesus Christ. That is not true in other world religions. In Confucianism and Buddhism it is the teachings of Confucius and of Buddha, which represent the essence of the religion, not the teacher who first enunciated them. Even in Islam, uh, Muhammad is a towering figure. Uh, He is the prophet, but Islam is not built upon Muhammad. It is the revelation that Muhammad says that he received uh, from the prophet, the archangel, the prophet received from the arch, archangel, archangel, that's good, arch, archangel Gabriel. That he recorded in the Quran. That is the essence of Islam and the sunnahs that followed that were given to him. You could take Muhammad out and still have Islam because you have the teaching of Islam. But if you take Jesus Christ out of Christianity, then there is no Christianity. Apart from him, it is nothing. Christianity is built upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If he is not who he said he was, if he did not do what he said he had come to do, you undermine the foundation of Christianity, and the whole superstructure would collapse. Take Christ from Christianity, you disembowel it. There is nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity. Everything else is circumference. The gospel of God is the theme of Romans. And in the verses we're going to look at this morning, verse two, three, and four, Paul describes that gospel. Now, I did verses one through 17 last week. I'm aware of that. I'm not quite that senile yet that I've forgotten. But I knew that you would be disappointed if I just zipped through 17 verses without real explanation. And I knew two of my deacons would be so upset they might have words with me. And so so I decided we'll go back and look at these a little closer. These are some of the most important words ever written. And I think that it is necessary for us to look at them very, very close. I told you last week, Romans 1, 1 through 7 is one long, very difficult to diagram sentence in the Greek text Paul begins by identifying himself and then describes what he calls the gospel of God and then he tells how that gospel goes to the nations through his apostleship in verses 5 and 6 and finally in verse 7 he greets the saints at Rome those that he is writing to. Now, we, we've already looked at that the fact that the gospel comes to us from God. It is God's gospel. Paul didn't make it up. I didn't make it up. I, I said, there's a lot of people who can preach the gospel better than I can, but they cannot preach a better gospel. There's only one gospel, and it's God's gospel. And it is recorded for us here. The gospel is is about God and about how we can be rightly related to God through the eternal Son, Jesus Christ. Paul begins in verse 2 by telling us that the gospel was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. Why? Why does Paul begin by saying the gospel of God was that which he promised beforehand through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures. Again because he didn't want to, us to think that he made it up. It wasn't Paul's idea. Matter of fact it would have been the furthest thing from Paul's mind. Uh, rather it comes to us out of the Old Testament. Notice he refers to according to the Scriptures. I'm always amazed by people who stay in the Christian Faith for years and think the New Testament is not relevant somehow, or the Old Testament is not relevant, and that there's no gospel in the Old Testament. Paul said that he's preaching this gospel that was according to the Scriptures. That's the Old Testament. Paul's in the process of writing the New Testament when Jesus said that not one jot nor tittle would pass away from. The Scripture, from the law of God to law was fulfilled, he was talking about the Old Testament. I've told you before, I always get amused about activists today who say, well, Jesus Christ never said anything about abortion. Yeah, he did. He believed the whole Old Testament. He believed what Jeremiah said about being formed in the womb and that God knew him. The Old Testament is the word of God. And if you are neglecting the reading of the Old Testament, stop it. Don't do that. Read read the Old Testament because the gospel comes to us out of the scriptures. God promised the gospel in prototype in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, where he promised that that the the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that is what theologians call the proto-evangelum, the first mention of the gospel, the first mention of the euangelion, the gospel, the good news. The gospel was implicit in the Old Testament sacrificial system. It was revealed more thoroughly to Moses, but I think it was revealed even from the outset to Cain and Abel. God killed an animal made a covering for Adam and Eve. Blood was shed. And he told them in type and in picture that the shedding of blood would be necessary to pay for sin. A life for a life to cover sin. The wages of sin is death. But from the beginning, God said that he would graciously accept a blood sacrifice. That's why that... Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable. You can't get blood out of a turnip. Someone said, well, Cain's offering, it, it was the best that he could do. It was. That was the problem. It was the best that he could do. He had not followed the, typo- the typology that God had already set forth, that the shedding of blood was necessary in order to pay for the wages of sin. You see the gospel again. In type. When Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac. And God intervenes. And what did Abraham see? He saw a ram in a thicket. He saw a lamb. Wearing a crown of thorns. God had provided the sacrifice. And a picture of the ultimate Sacrifice to come. What he would do by sending God the Son as an offering for sin. As Isaiah 53 makes clear, Jesus Christ is the lamb that was wounded for our transgressions. The record of Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts shows that when he was speaking to the Jews, he always reasoned from the scriptures to show them that Jesus was the promised Messiah. For instance, in Acts chapter 13, after summarizing Old Testament history uh, down to David, he concludes in verse 23, From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought a Savior to Israel, Jesus. In Acts chapter 17, we read with reference to Paul's visit to Thessalonica, And according to Paul's custom he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. The Old Testament explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. That's all through the book of Acts. It is important to see that the apostles did not make up the gospel. It came from the scriptures. From Genesis to Malachi, you have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what was given in type and in picture and in shadow is made abundantly clear in the New Testament. The scriptures here means the writings. God saw fit to have the prophets write down his revelation for their generation and succeeding generations to read. Now God could have sent an angel to every language group in the world and proclaimed the gospel, his truth. Frankly, it would have been a lot easier uh, than having to send people and have them struggle to learn a language so that they can translate it translate the Bible into that language. But God chose to reveal himself through the written word. And wherever that word has gone, cultures have been transformed as people learn to read the word of God. I've told you numerous times, I'm always skeptical of people who come up to me and say, oh, Brother Bob, God told me Seriously? God talks to you? Really? That's interesting. Well, God talked to Paul, yes, he was an apostle. And now we have the word of God written down. If you want to know what God says, read the Bible. If you want to know what God is saying and you want to hear it verbally, Read the Bible out loud. That way you'll have the Word of God. Now, the question is we kind of take for granted that we have the Bible translated into our language, we have it translated more accurately than at any time in history. But do we take advantage of that? Do you read the Bible? I'm amazed at even pastors who don't read the Bible. Listen, I've said this numerous times. I I had a New Testament professor in school that used to tell us, gentlemen, you can't come back from someplace you ain't never been. And you can't tell it like it is unless you know how it was. And you can't know how it was unless you read the Bible. How much do you read the Bible? There's 1189 chapters in the English Bible. If you read four chapters a day, you'll easily get through it in a year. Actually, it won't even take you a year. You'll get done in about 10 months, something like that. You ought to read the Bible through at least once every year. Oh, preacher, I just don't get anything out of it. Yes, you do. No, I don't. I don't get anything out of it. Either you're a liar or God is a liar, because God said, "My word will not return void; it will accomplish the purpose for which I have sent it." Sometimes people ask me about somebody asked me last week. So I, you know, I just bogged down in the genealogies. What do you do about them? I said, "Oh, I don't bog down. For instance, I know when I get to the Book of Second Chronicles, First Chronicles, that first ten chapters is zip. I'm done." You don't, you don't have to, all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable, but it's not all equally profitable. When you get to the genealogies, the zip through them, I read through Joshua last week. Ah, uh, them last few chapters where all the land's being divided, got through that pretty quick, you know. Concentrate on the portions of God's word that have more profit. Now there's some profit in the genealogies. For one thing, it tells you God is interested in people. These are the names of real people. You know, the division of the land in Joshua proves that God kept his promise to the tribes exactly as he said that he would. And it shows that they didn't keep their end of the bargain. They were supposed to drive out all the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all themites. And they did not do it. And it caused them great problems Later on. But listen, this is God's revelation of Himself to us and of His plan for us. Read it, study it, pour over it, meditate on it, because it is always profitable. But secondly, here, God's promise in the Old Testament to send the Savior is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. From a human perspective, Took many centuries, from the prophet Malachi to the birth of Jesus, is four hundred years. But God always keeps His promises in His time. No doubt, before Jesus came, people were scoffing and saying, "Where is the promise of the Savior?" Not all of them were. There was the godly Simeon and Anna that Luke tells us about in Luke chapter two. They were waiting expectantly for God to keep His promise. You may be tempted now to despair. Where is the promise of his coming? Look at the world. Look at our culture. Look at how rapidly people are moving away from God. Why doesn't Jesus come? He will come. He'll come in his time. Persevere. Keep on keeping on. Because God always keeps his promises. And Jesus Christ is coming again. And he will judge the world. And he will set up his kingdom, which shall last forever. Secondly, Paul says here, the gospel of God centers in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of the good news. One thing to do whenever you're talking to people who are unsaved is always bring the discussion back to Jesus Christ. I remember talking to a man many, many years ago up in Claiborne County, and I'd go see him every, about every month, and I was, I was sharing the gospel with him. He was unsaved, and he'd always want to get me off on something else. You know, he'd always be asking questions. Well, one, uh, one particular time I remember, he said, well, Preacher, I, I want to know, what do you think about Predestination. I said well I think everything's going to happen just the way God says. Well I I want to talk about that. I said "No, no we're not going to talk about that. Let me bring you back here to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you again that Christ died for your sins and was buried and rose again the third day. And after you come to Christ then we'll talk about that. There's no reason for us to talk about that now. That's a family discussion. You ain't in the family yet. You know. There, you know, there's certain things you just keep in the family. Friday, uh, Pat and I went down to Montgomery, Alabama, an uh, uncle of hers, her dad's youngest sister's husband, passed away. And there was a, a, an issue in the family, and they said, you know, we never understood that. Do you, do you know what that's about? And I said, yeah, well, will you tell us? Yeah, it's a family matter, I'll tell you. You know, there's certain things that we just discuss within the family. But anytime you're talking to anybody about the gospel, keep it centered on Jesus Christ. Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're one of the prophets. And then he said, but who do you say that I am? That is the critical question of time and eternity. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, And who the scriptures present him to be. Then he is the Lord of all. And we must bow before him. Paul tells us three succinct things about Jesus here. He is God's eternal son. He is God the son. He was born of the seed of David. According to the flesh. And he is now resurrected from the dead. And exalted to a position of power and glory. God's Son existed eternally before he was born. Paul says concerning his Son. In Romans 8, chapter 3, Paul says that God sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. So Jesus was God the Son eternally before he was born of Mary. He shared the glory of the Father before the world existed. Jesus himself says that. John chapter 17 and verse 5. And Jesus often spoke of the Father sending him into the world. I've read men who have said, one uh, scoffer, excuse me, scholar. Uh, up in Richmond, Virginia, wrote a whole book a few years ago talking about how Jesus was not God and never claimed to be. And I thought, somebody needs to buy this man a Bible and send it up to him because he doesn't have one. Or if he has one, he's never read it. I, I wrote him a letter and said, read the Gospel of John. I never heard from him. I was extremely disappointed. But anyway, Jesus was not a normal man who became the Son of God when the Holy Spirit came upon him. God did not adopt Jesus as his Son at his baptism, as some heresies have taught through the years. Rather, he is eternally God the Son, sent by the Father to take on human flesh in the Incarnation. Now, He has returned to the right hand of the Father to await the day of his glorious coming. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And any teaching that denies either one of those things is heresy. If anybody denies that Jesus is fully God, they are a heretic. If anyone denies that he was fully man... They are a heretic. He is the second person of the Trinity. And whenever the New Testament writers refer to God's Son, they are affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. God's Son was born, Paul says, of the seed of David, according to the flesh. Linking back to verse 2, showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God promised David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. Israel's Messiah and Savior was promised to be of the seed of David. But David's line on the throne over Israel ceased to exist at the time of the Babylonian captivity, 600 years before the birth of Christ. But the New Testament clearly affirms that Jesus was born of the lineage of David. Near the very end of the book of Revelation, Jesus says this to John I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the son of David, who fulfills the promises of God to Israel. This means that Jesus is not only fully God, he's fully man. He shares in our human nature. He's just like us, humanly speaking, except that he has no sin. And I realize that's a huge exception. But other than that, he is fully man. So he could bear the penalty for our sins. He had no sins of his own. So he could die in our place. He is fully human. That makes him a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He can encourage us when we are tried and tempted. I'm not aware currently of any threat to the Christian faith from those who would deny the humanity of Jesus. But in the early church, that was the battle that they fought. Men believed that Jesus was God. They didn't believe he was man. All kinds of heresies rose up to deny the humanity of Jesus. Uh, the, The New Testament emphasizes the truth of the humanity of Jesus, especially John in his Gospel And in his epistles. Jesus was not some angelic spirit. Who seemed to be a man. He was a real man. Born physically. To Mary. Of the lineage of David. According to the flesh. Which means that Jesus is coming again. To reign in power and glory on the earth. Jesus is coming again. And God will remake heaven and earth. And if you read the last chapters of the book of the Revelation you want to know where heaven is? Right here. A new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. He makes all things new. Uh, the The early church had a problem with this. They couldn't understand how the Christ, the Messiah, could suffer and die. They wanted him to set up the kingdom right then and put them on the throne. But Jesus himself, as after the resurrection, told the disciples on the, the Emmaus road, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then Luke records, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. From Genesis to Malachi, all of it is about Jesus. Paul uses that same line of argument in Acts chapter 13, I just read to you. While there is much in the book of the Revelation that is difficult to understand, the main idea of the Revelation is pretty clear. The risen Lord Jesus Christ is coming again in power and glory to judge the earth and to rule in righteousness. That's the book of the Revelation. You don't need to know what the 10th horn on the 7th head on the 14th beast means. You don't know anyway. Let me tell you, I spent years trying to figure that out. What a waste of time. Just know that Jesus Christ is coming again to reign in glory. He will judge the living and the dead, and he will reign forever. By referring to him as God's son, Paul is speaking of the pre-incarnate glory of the eternal son. By referring to Jesus as born of a descendant of David, He is speaking of his humanity. And then God's son was appointed to be the son of God with power by the resurrection for the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Now I said, we dealt with this last week. I'm not going to go into too much detail here. The word declared, I said, everywhere means appointed. He is appointed. He's determined to be God's son. Uh, and the resurrection shows what he was appointed to be all alone. He was elevated to a new level of power after the resurrection. We talked about that two stages of Jesus' life. His humiliation, that is the incarnation where he is the lowly Jesus. And after the resurrection, he is the son of God in power. He is the Lord exalted. He is the one that every knee will bow to and every tongue will Will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and according to the Spirit of holiness. And uh, I, I said last week that that basically it, it characterizes Christ spiritually, just as according to the flesh characterizes him physically. Now that's not that's not the only viewpoint. There 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 are other conservative authors that believe differently that that means something different and I thought I might tell you those but I, I really just don't want to confuse you you know uh, if, if you disagree with me which is fine you know I'm certainly not always right <clears throat> then you can but you can read on your own but I think it I think the best meaning here is that it characterizes him spiritually it expresses the spirit of holiness that dominated all of his thoughts and actions. His holy obedience, his loving God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength. And loving his neighbor as himself. I find it interesting that then in these opening verses, Paul does not explicitly mention the death of Jesus Christ. Although it's implicit. I mean, you can't rise from the dead unless you're first dead. But it's not an explicit reference The the death of Christ was devastating for many. It was devastating for the apostles to begin with because they had no concept of a suffering Messiah. They didn't link that Isaiah 53 passage to him. So the gospel of God centers in the person of his son who existed eternally, was born of the seed of David, was appointed to be the son of God with power, By his resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. And finally, God's son is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus refers to his humanity. The angel said, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Christ is a title, means Messiah, which means an anointed one. Messiah is the Hebrew, Christ is the Greek. It means anointed one. It points to the fact that Jesus was a descendant of David. Lord could be used as a polite term. It sometimes is translated sir, but it could also be used of God. It is the term that was used to translate the divine name in the Old Testament, the tetragrammaton. You know, there are no vowels in Hebrew, just vowel markers. And so, translating what God said to Moses at the burning bush, I am that I am, then the name of God were four letters in Hebrew. And it is translated, it was Latinized in the early part of church history to Jehovah. Now, more commonly, the term Yahweh is used, but it refers to God Almighty. In the the writings of the Old Testament, because the Jews would not say that name, nor would they write it down, they translated it as Lord. When you see Lord in the Old Testament, and it's all small caps, that is the name of God. It is the Lord. Uh, they mean Jesus, whenever the Bible says that Jesus is Lord, it means he is the Lord God. He is Yahweh. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. Paul loved to use the complete phrase, Jesus Christ our Lord. He uses it 68 times compared to only 19 in all the rest of the New Testament. Jesus is Lord. And by the way, just in case you're wondering, it is absolute nonsense to somehow say that you can accept Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord. That's a nonsensical thought. He is Savior because he's Lord. He's Lord because he's Savior. He is one being, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He doesn't give us the option of saying, well, I'd like to have you a Savior, but you don't mind, I'll just stay Lord of my own life, okay? I'll determine where I go, what I do, and how I spend my money, and who I marry, and no, that don't work. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. There was a man in the 19th century by the name of Robert Ingersoll. He was a famous agnostic, and he was no friend to Christianity, but he saw things, some things more clearly than some people who occupy pulpits today. And he said on one occasion, in a critical vein, Christianity cannot live in peace with any other form of faith. If that religion be true, there is but one Savior. There is only one inspired book. And there is only one narrow little path that leads to heaven. Ingersoll spoke the truth and didn't even know it. There is only one Savior, Jesus. There is only one Lord, Jesus. There is only one narrow path to heaven, Jesus. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. The question is, is he your Savior? And is he your Lord? The gospel is not primarily about how you can find happiness and peace and fulfillment. It's not primarily about how you can have a better marriage and a better sex life and how you can be financially successful. Primarily, the gospel is from God and about God. It concerns his eternal son who humbled himself and became a man, offered himself on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins. So it ultimately doesn't come down to whether or not Jesus can give me a happy life. That's not the question. The question is, who is Jesus? And the answer is, He is God the Son. He is fully man. He is Savior and Lord. Make sure that He is your Savior and your Lord. Just a moment.